John chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Father, uh, we just thank you um, for the opportunity to come here this morning and just celebrate you, Lord. Um, celebrate um, Jesus um, coming um, to earth and living a perfect life and dying on the cross for us, Lord. Um, we just thank you uh, for defeating sin and death. We thank you that we have the promise of eternal life in you. Um, we thank you for meeting us where we're at. Um, just like you came um, to that woman, God, you come to us and um, you offer us um, eternal life and salvation. And um, we just praise you, God. Um, just pray that you would be glorified here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Am I on? Yeah, there we go. Happy Easter. Uh, welcome to Aletheia. Whoa, there we go. My mic's on. That's real quick. I always get told that I don't really need that mic because my voice is so powerful, but it's for recording purposes. But anyway, happy Easter. Welcome to Aletheia. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. So, so glad you're here with us this morning to worship. Um, you know, here this morning, we are here to celebrate one thing, and that is Jesus. And, um, you know, Friday... Uh, you know, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung from the cross, crucified for crimes he didn't commit, um, wrongfully tried at the hands of the Roman government and the Jewish authorities, um, was sentenced to death, made to carry his own cross, went to the top of the mountain, ca carried the, the weight of that cross on his shoulders, was crucified, dead, and buried, and then Sunday as the women that he had as his disciples came to uh, take care of his body in the tomb. They arrived at the tomb and found it empty. And I love that passage in the Gospels where as the women are so upset and distraught over the fact that Jesus' body is now missing from the tomb, an angel appears and says to them, Do not be worried. Do not be afraid. For he is no longer dead, but he is alive and has risen. And the hope and joy that came over those women as they met that, the angel that morning, that, that is why we're here this morning. Guys, for, for the last 2,000 plus years, the church has had one mission, and that's to talk about what Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so you're not going to get a ton of fluff from me this morning. Although, I will say this, I've got about 42 verses to go through this morning, so 
So if you guys know me, just be ready. We're going to be here to about 2 or 3 o'clock this afternoon. The other church that meets here meets at 4 o'clock, so I've got plenty of time. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But the reality is, at, here, here at Aletheia, whether this is your first Sunday here or you've been here for years, we celebrate the resurrection every week. You know, this isn't something we do once a year, but we are excited about it this morning because culturally, our country still observes this time period and the special just season that we're in this morning, knowing that this is a time for us to reflect on what Jesus did. And so we're going to celebrate a little extra hard this morning with the culture around us. Okay, so the last two Sundays, what we've been doing is we've been looking at various people throughout the gospel accounts and trying to understand where they kind of fit into the biblical narrative and then what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection meant for them. What the, where he met them, how he rescued them, and what that had secured for them. And so we looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, two weeks ago, and this idea of the fact that she get, was given the privilege of carrying the Messiah of the entire world and then later needed that same son to die for her sins. And the, the, the overwhelming amount of emotions that would have come through knowing that. And then Peter, we talked about last week, right? Peter's always this guy in the scriptures who talks a big game, but then when it comes time to, to really put up or shut up, he fails miserably. And I love the beauty of what you see in the scriptures, right? Because you see Peter deny Jesus three times at his trial at the hands of the Jews, walk away distraught in shame over what he's done, how he's denied the very guy that he spent the last three plus years with in ministry. He's so distraught. And then he runs to the empty tomb. And the moment he sees the empty tomb on Easter moment, Easter morning, he's overcome by emotion because he finally realizes for the first time the magnitude of all that Jesus has been saying to him for the last three years. You need me to die for you, Peter, because I am going to rescue you from yourself. I'm going to rescue you from your sin, your guilt, your shame. And so, Jesus, so Peter shows up to the tomb that morning, and he sees the empty tomb, and he's overcome with joy at what he experiences. And so the story this morning, though, is probably one of my favorite in all of Scripture. Because the Samaritan at, woman at the well has so many different layers to it. The fact that she's not Jewish. The fact that Jesus is talking to a woman. The fact that, there, that she has the background that she has. There's so many things going on here. And yet this woman has this crazy encounter with Jesus at this well outside the town that completely changes her life. And guys, I'm here to tell you this morning that what this woman experiences in John chapter 4 is no different than what any other follower of Jesus Christ experiences if they walk with him long enough. That what Jesus does is change lives. That's what he does. That, that no matter who you are, and I, I hear this all the time, because some people are like, my testimony is boring. Guys, I don't care if you came to faith at two years old the moment you learned how to talk. Your testimony is still a miracle at the hands of Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And so there's no such thing as a boring testimony, but this woman's testimony is a little bit crazier. And so go ahead and open up your Bible, if you have it, to John chapter 4, or you can pull out your phone. I would ask that you stay off Facebook. There's not going to be enough scripture there for you to hear all 42 verses. But go ahead and open up your Bible to John chapter 4, and we're going to try to unpack all these verses. So I want to look at the first six verses to start with. We'll kind of, kind of keep plowing through here, and then we've got uh, a pretty exciting moment coming up a little bit later. All right. 
Starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he came to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so I want you, I want to make sure we share, there's not a ton of important information to the relevance of like what's actually going on in the story, but I always want us to understand the full picture of what's going on here, because when we read the Gospels, the, the gospel authors are very, very careful about making sure they include extra information so we understand the flow of the story. And so here's what's happening. Jesus has been in the southern region of Israel, modern-day Israel, called Judea, and he's been doing ministry, and a lot of people are getting baptized. And if you know anything about the gospel accounts, anytime Jesus starts drawing large crowds, he dips out because he knows what problems are going to be created by these large crowds. So he's doing a lot of ministry. A lot of people are getting baptized. The Pharisees start to hear about it. He doesn't want to deal with the religious leaders. He doesn't want to deal with all of the social stigma and everything that's going to come with it. And so he says, okay, look, we're going to move into Galilee now, and we're going to start doing ministry in Galilee. And so on their way to this region of Galilee, they have to pass through this area called Samaria, which really, in reality, I, I don't know how best to describe it. Maybe, like, maybe in state-wise, we've got Florida and Alabama, and everyone in Florida kind of looks at Alabama and is like, hmm. You know, Samaria was kind of like Alabama. And if you're from Alabama here this morning, I, I'm sorry, okay? Now, so, so there's someone in Alabama who's like, I'm never coming back to this church again. I can't believe this guy's saying this, okay? Yeah, we had it where I grew up, when Virginians and West Virginians. It's just, you know, there tend to be rivalries among states, okay? Now, Israel and Samaria do not get along. For, for multiple reasons, for political reasons, for religious reasons, Ma mainly being is that they have some pretty big disagreements on which books of the Bible actually belong in the Old Testament or not. And so Israel and Samaria, they do not get along at all. And yet Jesus is kind of traveling through the city and they get to this area and they kind of are at this well outside of the city, which is a pretty prominent landmark in Israeli history. It's, it's Jacob's well. It's the place where Joseph was given this land by Jacob. So it was well known in Jewish culture and history. And as they're sitting at this well, the disciples kind of go into town, and it says that it was in the sixth hour. Now, all you need to know about that is it's about noon. It's about 12 p.m., middle of the day, hot, right? And so he's sitting at this well, and they walk everywhere they're going, so he's fairly tired. Okay, now, here's where the story starts getting exciting. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water 
will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I, excuse me, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, let's get a few things off the table here about trying to understand what's going on with this narrative. Let's start with the Samaritan woman. She is a train wreck, okay? That's pretty much the, the, the best way to kind of describe her position in the story and what's going on with her life. She's been married five times, and this, the story doesn't state why she's been married five different times. But from the context of the story, you can probably gather that not all of the reasons were exactly what we would call biblical, Okay, and so she's, she's been married five times, and as she's sitting there talking to Jesus, right, and as he's kind of drawn this out of her, she's currently also living with a guy that is not her husband. Basically, she's, the best way to put it, she's exchanging relations for rent. It's what she's doing right now. Now, she lives in a smaller vi village in Samaria, Right? In this incredibly religious and kind of judgmental culture. And so here's what I know is bound to be true about her. She's ashamed and broken of who she is. And some of you guys are like, how are you drawing that out of the text? What time does it say that Jesus shows up to the well? Noon. Has anybody ever been overseas at a place where he had to draw water? from a well. Okay, not many of you guys. We need to go on more missions trips where that kind of thing happens. Okay, one person. All right. If you've ever done that, here's what I can kind of share, share with you about those regions of the world that, that rely on visiting a water hole or a well for their daily, their daily water routine. They're not showing up there at noon. Okay, they're going at 5 or 6 a.m. Before the, before the heat of the day, and then they're going back in the evening to get them through the night. And so what would typically happen in these villages is they would leave the village and go out around 5 or 6 a.m. It would be kind of a, a big deal. Most of the women would be the ones that would do it, and they would go out to these wells, and they would draw their water, and they would gossip with one another and talk and discuss things. She, however, does what? Waits until the worst possible time of the day to head out to the well. Why? Because she's a social outcast for who she is, what she's been doing, and she doesn't want to deal with the gossip and the judgment that she's been dealing with over the, the last couple of years living in this particular city. And so the reality is, is this, this, this woman's kind of a wreck. She's been married five times. She's currently living with a guy that she's not married with. Biblically speaking, those are grounds for her being put to death according to the Old Testament law. And she's also supposed to be shunned by the entire society around her. Now, if you get shunned in today's society, there's enough people living, we're, inter we're connected on the web, that's not as big of a deal, and yet we still see people struggling with things like anxiety and depression and loneliness in a time period where we've, e we've been more connected than ever. Now imagine 2,000 years ago being shunned by your only support group. She's a wreck. 
She's got no one except this guy that she lives with, and she's a wreck. And so she shows up to this well, and I can tell you this. In Jewish culture, men did not engage with women. It was just part of the cultural stigma that men and women should not relate with one another unless they were married. And so, to start with, Jesus would not have talked with her simply because of the Jewish customs and cultures and the way that, that life worked in the Near East then. Now, on top of that, the fact that she's a Samaritan just adds one more stigma to the plate because Jews did not have any relationship with Samaritans. You will see throughout the scripture multiple times when people are, when Jews are speaking of people that they look down on, they mention two groups, Gentiles and Samaritans, and they put them in the same, you know, kind of playing field because even though Samaritans grew up with the scriptures and believed in the same God, Jews did not take them seriously and treated them as if they were non-believers because they denied many of the books of the Old Testament. And so as the Samaritan woman walks up to the well, full of shame, guilt, broken over her life, and obviously expecting to be avoided as she shows up to the well, instead Jesus engages her. He speaks to her the moment she shows up, and it takes her aback. She's shocked by it. She's like, hey, what are you, a Jewish man, doing talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Like, don't you, like, are you confused? You know, don't you know you're not supposed to be talking with me? It's kind of a, against the rules that we would talk with one another. But what I love most about this exchange is not just that he breaks all of the cultural rules by talking to her, but he engages her heart. Right, she comes to that well to get some water, and he says, hey, will you draw me some water? She's like, sure, you know, I, but, you know, you know what, why are you even talking with me in the first place? And he's like, look, if you knew who you were talking to right now, you wouldn't be questioning anything that I say to you, but you would be asking me for living water. Let me translate for you guys what's going on there. Jesus is beginning to share why he is there on earth in the first place with her. He's doing what we would call sharing the gospel with her. He's going to start revealing to her, <laughs> her what, where she's at and who he is and why he's there in the first place. And so he's like, look, if you knew who I am and you, if you knew that I was sent from God and of God, instead, instead of kind of arguing with me about whether or not you can draw water from me or not, you would ask me to give you the water that wells up into eternal life. Now, imagine yourself sitting there and you're, you're this Samaritan woman, you're, you're broken, you're in shame, all of a sudden this, this, this kind of Jewish teacher starts talking to you and he starts talking about eternal life to you, you're obviously going to be taken aback a little bit. It's not probably the, the conversation she expected to have when she walked out to the well at noon that day. And so she, she gets there and she kind of pushes back and she's like, well, wait a minute, you know, how, how, does, how does this work? I don't, I don't know what's going on here. This is, what do you, what do you mean? And he's like, look, I'm here to tell you that the, the, the water I provide, if anyone drinks from this well, they're going to need to drink again. But if you drink from the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. Pretty bold claim. Okay, I love it. Like there are times where people say, oh, Jesus was just some religious teacher. He was just another good guy in the, in the mixture of all the great prophets that, that Israel's had over time. 
There are many things you can say about Jesus. The fact that he was just a good teacher is not one of them. He didn't leave you that chance. That claims he makes, right? How many people of you guys know a good teacher in this town, if they started talking like this, saying, hey, I can offer you eternal life, instead of following them, what would you probably do? Try to have them committed. And yet Jesus is sitting there with this woman saying, hey, look, I can offer you eternal life. What, what I'm bringing to the table is knowing God and being forever connected with him. And he doesn't just talk with her about the theological implications of eternal life, right? Because that's what a lot of people you see there is like, oh, he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about how he is the gospel and how she needs him for eternal life. But notice what else he does there. He engages her heart. Right? He shares the good news that he can offer her eternal life. And what is she, what, what's her response? It's like, I, I want that. That sounds, uh, eternal life? That's amazing. Like, please sign me up. I, def, I definitely want that. I want to I know what you're talking about. And what does he say to her? Go get your husband. Now, guys, he's not just doing that so that she'll go get the guy that she's living with. He is well aware, even though he has not lived in this city, he is well aware of who she is and what her past is. And this is one of those things that, that I think is maybe important for us to spend a second just kind of looking at and trying to understand about God and what he does for us. A lot of us kind of view God as this get-out-of-jail-free card and that Jesus dying on the cross was this get-out-of-jail-free card, but we don't ever want to really let Jesus do what he came to do in the first place, and that's deal with the deepest, darkest parts of our heart. Right? The darkest places of this woman's heart was her sin with her husband's and the man that she's living with. And what's the first place Jesus goes to? He lays it out before. Now, most of us are like, we don't, we don't, I don't want to deal with the dark places of my heart. I don't want <laughs> to lay those bare. I don't want to deal with them myself, much less let a stranger in on that. But look at the good news of this passage. Jesus comes into this region, engages with this complete stranger, engages her on a heart level, but he doesn't just leave her there hanging. He engages her to know, hey, this is the exact reason why I came in the first place. You're right to tell me that you have no husband. You're right to tell me that the guy you're living with is not your husband because you're living in sin. All of this is right for you to have told me. And so he, he's engaging her, and basically what he's done so far up in our story is he's laid her sin completely bare before her, saying, look, you're not the only one that knows about this. I know about it too, and I'm God's son. I know everything. Now, look at how he continues to engage her as, he, as her sin is laid bare. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And I love this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So first of all, guys, I I love how kind of like last week we kind of pumped up Peter about confessing Jesus as the Messiah, but the first person to kind of confess Jesus as the Messiah was actually a Samaritan woman (laughs) at a a well outside of the city that she lives in. She's the first person to kind of realize who Jesus fully is and what he's come to do. But Jesus, and I want us to pay attention to what the Samaritan woman is, is doing here because I think there is a propensity in the human race to do what she does in this narrative. She's, she's sitting there talking to him, and as she's talking with him, she's obviously confused and, and everything else, and then he, you know, kind of puts the dagger in and starts laying her sin before her, okay? And this is what often ends up happening to us. All of us in this room are carrying baggage. Every single one of us. Look, look around you right now. The person to your left, to your right, in front of you, behind you, wherever you're sitting, that person's got baggage as well. You know, all of us are kind of walking around and we put on these things. This is one of the reasons why I hate Facebook so much. I remember a couple years ago, my wife was a new mom and she was two. And there was this, this former preschool teacher that had a kid around the same time as my wife. And she would post these pictures on Facebook of like all the fun activities she was doing with her kid. And Jackie's like, I'm a terrible mom. You know, like because she wasn't having this perfect image of what a mom was supposed to be. And I'm like, look. Anybody can take pictures when things are going great and stick them on Facebook. How about when that kid's, you know, had a blowout at one in the morning and it's dark and it's all over you now and no one's sleeping for the next three hours, right? No one's posting that Facebook picture. I have yet to see it. And so there's this tendency, right, for us as human beings to only reveal the good side of us so that people might think of us, right, and it help build, builds up our self-righteousness, our self-importance, right, kind of builds up our own little kingdom. And as this woman's doing everything she can, even in the midst of her sinfulness, to do the same thing by going out to that well at 12 p.m., Jesus goes, boom! No, I know who you really are, and you know who you really are, and we're going to deal with it. And so often that happens to us. We'll come to these places and we'll, we'll, we'll start realizing the weight of our sin. The way we treat our parents, the way we treat our roommates, the way we treat our friends, the way we treat our significant others, the, the addictions that we have. We'll start realizing all these different things and they'll start being laying bare before us. And as they're laid bare before us, Instead of starting to process through them and deal with them the way that Jesus is pursuing this woman, trying to get her to deal with her sin, what do we do? We run into protection mode. And that's exactly what the Samaritan woman does, right? She's just had her sin laid bare before her. And what does she run to? Hey, Jesus, let's argue theology here for a minute. What mountain are we supposed to be worshiping on? Now, let me, let me stop here because a lot of people are like, oh man, she's crazy. What is she doing arguing with Jesus? Her question to Jesus is a completely legitimate question because at this time, if you had your sin laid bare before you, you were supposed to go make atonement for your sin. And so she's asking Jesus, where do I need to go make atonement? Can I do it on this mountain in Samaria or do I need to go to Jerusalem and go to the temple to make atonement for my sin? 
And this is where it starts getting really good, guys. Okay, as she's dealing with this theological issue, still not really wrestling with the full weight of what's going on in her heart, Jesus is like, look, I'm telling you right now that a time had been promised in the past that where you worship wasn't going to matter. And that time is here because I am here. That God is now looking for those to worship Him, the Father, in spirit and in truth. And that I am the one that offers that to you. That in, in my offering to you eternal life, eternal water, you don't need to go somewhere else to make atonement. I'm going to do that for you. The atoning sacrifice for sin that you're looking for is not going to be done with a lamb or a bull or a dove. It's going to be done with me. That I'm going to give myself for you. And it doesn't matter where you go because where you go to worship in the Spirit, the Spirit is now going to dwell in you. And if you are a Christian here this morning, this is true of you, you are a holy temple to the Father. That is true of you. Some of you guys are like, I don't know what you're talking about right now. Look, we can spend an entire summer studying that sometime if you want. But the reality of the Christian is, is the moment you believe and place your trust in what Jesus Christ has done, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and you can talk to him whenever you want. You have a free access line that you are washed, forgiven, cleansed, declared not guilty. That the weight of sin, shame, and guilt that once plagued you is gone and wiped away. That you don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to go somewhere special. That God himself has made you clean through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as he's talking to this woman, he's telling her what he's going to do. He's like, look, I know your sin. I know that theologically, your camp and my camp can't even get on the same page. Doesn't matter doesn't matter. Don't even worry about it anymore. Because the time has come where God has sent the Christ to rescue the world for their sins. I have come to make you right. God will dwell in you. The Messiah, the one you're longing for, the, the one you're looking for, that's me. I'm the one that has been promised. And so you get to, to, to jump, verses 27 through 38, and we're not going to spend a ton of time looking at those. I'm not even going to read them to you. You can feel free to read them yourself if you want. But let me tell you real quickly what happens. He's had this full-on engagement with the Samaritan woman, and I love this. It's, it's like, it shows how the human race is so awkward. The disciples roll back to the well, and they see Jesus engaging with the Samaritan woman. I imagine he's just laid bare her sin. She's probably an absolute emotional basket case. I mean, my wife cries when Josiah says, I love you. I can only imagine what would happen at that well if she meets Jesus and he lays all of her sin before him. So they show back up to the well, and I, I love what it says there. It's like, no one mentions anything that he's talking to the Samaritan woman. Like, the disciples are just kind of like, oh, okay. And like, they do the same old cultural thing that everyone else does, and they avoid her, but they don't even engage Jesus on the fact that he's engaging with this woman. They're not interested in being a part of it. They're, no one asks her to do anything. They see Jesus engaging with her, and they just ignore it. It's kind of like what we do with one another. We see someone struggling, or they're in sin. It's like, ooh, okay. All right. We've been working through that this entire semester. If you've been in a community group about the gospel-centered community, right? The moment someone starts struggling or having a hard time, what do we do? 
wall, that person's too much work, right? Good friends, right? And so they show up and they see this and they just skip out. Now, I do want to read verse 29 to you, though, because in the midst of all of that, as the disciples are completely ignoring what's going on, look at what the Samaritan woman says in verse 29. It says that she left with her water jar in verse 28 and went away back into town. This woman who wouldn't talk to anybody and went to the well at a time where she wouldn't have to deal with people goes back into the town and starts engaging everyone she talks with in her town saying this. The woman said to him, excuse me, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So you have this woman who goes to the well at noon to hide from being around people, then running into the town and screaming, I think I found the Messiah. We need to go out and talk to him. Her life has been completely changed in the matter of about five minutes. I don't know how long that that discussion was. But in a matter of a few minutes at the well outside of Sychar that morning, she comes out there broken, beaten down, completely a mess, and goes back into the town, a new woman, excited and exclaiming that the Messiah is there. Guys, there is no medicine on earth and there is no therapy that we could think up as human beings that could create that kind of change that quickly. That kind of change only comes from a real encounter with Jesus Christ. And the gospel completely changing your life. You don't hide from a town and go back in five minutes later, screaming and trying, and it's like, hey, you guys all know I'm a sinner. I know we've been kind of playing this weird game where we don't talk to one another. Who cares now? Jesus just forgave me. She's so excited that she can't help but share what's going on. And then look at what her testimony leads to, starting in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know now that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Her life has changed. She's not about fixing her reputation, but but instead exclaiming how great Jesus is and how great what he's done for her is. The people start responding like, we can't believe this. And then her testimony leads some to believe. And then more go out to hear what she's exclaiming. And then they meet Jesus and have their lives changed as well. Guys, we are here this morning to celebrate the fact that what Jesus promised that woman in John chapter 4, he followed through on. The reason On Good Friday, Jesus went to the cross was not because he was a political martyr. It was not because the religious leaders were jealous of him. It was not because there was some grand mistake and he was wrongly tried. All those things might be secondary truths, but the primary truth of why Jesus was crucified on Good Friday is because it was the Father's will for him to be crushed. That the Father sent his only Son to be crucified on the cross 
so that his wrath for our sin might be satisfied. That what took place on the cross is known as the great exchange. And as Jesus went to the cross, he took on all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my guilt, all of my disobedience and rebellion towards the Father. He placed all of that on his shoulders and satisfied God's wrath towards me on himself instead. And as the Father's wrath poured out on Jesus, exchanged and given to you and I, is Christ's perfect life. That the cross both pays for our sin, but then declares you and I not guilty. The forgiveness of sins and eternal life with the Father is offered because of what Jesus did on the cross. And then we celebrate on Sunday morning like this morning that death and sin could not defeat him, but that he rose from the grave to show his power and victory over death. And that you and I aren't here worshiping a guy that died some 2,000 years ago that said some good things, but had the power to raise himself from the dead and declare us not guilty before the Father, and now, as they say in Hebrews, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, intervening for you and I. That he's petitioning the Father for our good. That he's saying, forgive him. Show grace towards him. He gives us the Holy Spirit to come alongside us and help us. And what's so beautiful about this story in John chapter 4 is it's the first glimpse we get at someone's life being radically changed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do now, guys. We've got three awesome people in this church who are going to come up here and share their testimonies with you this morning. Because the reality is, is what we're reading about in John chapter 4 is a testimony of what Jesus did for the Samaritan woman. So Gene, if you want to come on up, Gene's going to be first. We're going to have Gene, who's a recent UF grad and now an engineer here in Gainesville. You can come up to this mic right here, buddy. Then we're going to have Ketty, who's back in the back there. She's crazy. She's got the hardest job of all of us. She's got three kids. All the moms in here, you guys are amazing. And then we're going to have Stephen come up and share his testimony. And then I'm going to come back up and close this. But we're going to let Gene kind of share what God has done in his life. Hi. Yes, my name is Gene. Um, so, good morning. I, <laughs> so, I'm not necessarily like the Samaritan woman in the sense that, like, the Samaritan woman was definitely an outcast in her society, both the Jewish society and her own as a Samaritan. But, like, where I see my connection with her is the fact that with the Jews, they would go around the city of Samaritan, uh, Samaria in order to avoid these people. Um, half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-foreigners. Um, but Jesus went through the land, and he sat at that well knowing that he would meet her. And so for me, my backstory is that, that I was raised in a Baptist church um, down in South Florida, very strict. And in my church, even as an unbeliever, I was sharing the gospel. I was talking to people about Jesus, and that was something that my church encouraged, where it's like, go out there, um, tell people about the Lord, and you might say, well, like, you probably wasn't sharing the gospel. I used, like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, Ray Comfort and Way of the Master. I used that method, so I wasn't really knowing God, 
but I was sharing the gospel with people. I approached my middle school teacher. He was like my uh, peer counseling, and he was an atheist, uh, ex-Catholic. So like that moment, just talking to him about the Lord, uh, that was a transition for me where he makes, you know, basically explained to me how the church, um, how people in the name of God have just been doing just such horrible things. Um, and at that moment, and he asked me a question that changed my life, where he asked, why do you believe in God? Do you believe in God because your parents told you that he exists? Or do you believe in him because you actually know that God exists? My obvious answer was my parents believe. I go to church. <laughs> uh, so I went home, sat in my closet, because I would just want to be away from everybody, and I spoke to God or this being, because at that moment, I wasn't sure. I told him, well, okay, I don't know if you exist. I don't know if I'm actually speaking to anyone, but if you do, you're going to have to reveal yourself to me. For right now, I'm an atheist. And um, so like from there, like, I don't know how long of a period it was, a month, a week, but it was like a, a period of just depression because I had no hope. I, didn't, I never understood this before. Like obviously I never thought about it. Like God is the one who gives me hope and purpose in life. But at that moment, I realized I have no hope. So for that long period of time, whatever that was, by the end of that period, I wanted to die. I no, one, no longer wanted to live because I saw no reason to live. But I was afraid, of course. So I went back to that same closet. I feel as if that's my well moment where like God's sitting there waiting for me to come back because like he knows that he wants, he wants me to worship him. And I come to that closet and I, and I pray to God and ask him so, and I speak to him and say, I don't know if you exist, but like I want to die. I don't want to die. Change my heart, change my desires. And I, okay, so I, I've read the Bible multiple times. So I go to the book of John and I start reading. I'm like, okay, well, what is it? How do you get saved? Oh, okay, well, you need to repent. You need to ac acknowledge that like you're, uh, you need to actually forgive. If you don't forgive, you, you won't be forgiven. So I started thinking about who, I, who do I need to forgive? Something came over me where like, it was just a rush of acknowledgement, like new knowledge of myself. And it was, it was hard. Like I started realizing like, whoa, I hate people. I get into fights all the time because I'm angry. Um, I, I'm watching pornography on a regular basis and, and this is like something, and this is normal. This is, this is stuff that I'm like, yeah, I do these things and this is perfectly fine. But then what I started realizing at that moment, it's like, I have sinned against God. I'm coming in front of God saying, you must provide this knowledge to me. Tell me who you are. But I'm like, whoa, I've sinned against you. I actually do not deserve to be with you. And I ask him, okay, change me. Give me a desire to live. And then from there, I will, I'll worship you, whatever you need to do. I thought, and at that moment, I thought, I have to go to church. I have to read my Bible. I have to pray every day. It's, for me, it was very hard <laughs> to think that I would have to do all those things and consistently. Um, but at that moment, it was a complete change where, like, my heart moved from a desire to die to a, just a joy flowing out of me, um, desiring to, to love God and to be with God and to be faithful to him. I rushed to my Bible, started reading through the book of John, trying to understand specifically making sure that I actually was with, right with God and things like that. And something I, when I look back and I think about how God changed my heart and made me to desire him compared to desiring my sins, I, um, I see that like he pursued me. 
that that wasn't some time where like it was some mistake, some accident, but that he actually pursued me like he did the Samaritan woman. He was waiting for me, waiting for that brokenness to change me, to, well, to do his work in me, because that's where I needed to be. Um, so I say that in the sense that, um, well, well, also that, you know, that <laughs> it didn't end there, where God sanctif- continually is sanctifying me, um, dealing with the struggle with same-sex attraction for years and um, dealing with, uh, like, anger with my family and things like that. Like, God has continuously been working in me, and that's what I, I, can, I can see that over that well. It wasn't just living water. It was a daily well, that, a daily source of living water. And, and yeah, so God does the work in you, and when he does it, he doesn't stop there. He completes it. Good morning and happy Easter. Um, My name is Keddy Escobar. And like many of you, I grew up in the church. Um, In my case, I grew up in a church that was um, full of legalism. And church was more about doing this um, kind of like, like a list. And there was these things that you have to follow in this list, like a checklist of things that you had to do, and if you did these things, then you were considered a good Christian. And even though I was in that church, God found me there. Um, In my sophomore year, I started to realize that I had, um, in sophomore year of high school, that is, I started to realize that I had a lot of pain in my heart, and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to fix it, how to just, it was very overwhelming. And I started to realize that I needed God. Um, And the reason why I had all that pain in my heart was because I am the daughter of an alcoholic. He never stopped drinking. He chose alcohol over us, me, my family, my mom, you know. And that was very hard because I felt abandoned. And um, anyways, in that church, I met God, and um, he healed my heart, and he literally became my earthly father, and I had to rely on him a lot because I didn't have a father like most girls do, or, you know, sometimes even if you have a father, they're not perfect, and God can take that place in your heart. Um, And so anyways... Because this church was so legalistic, I started falling into that um, legalism instead of depending on God. And it was just more like I was playing church, just going um, through the motions. But as I went on to college, I went to um, the university of this denomination. And um, there I started reading the Bible for myself. And I started seeing that what the church was teaching was not what the Bible was saying. But even though I was seeing that, I, um, 
I continue to just go by what the church was saying and not what the Bible was telling me. And um, so it wasn't until I finished school, um, the um, college, that I met my husband and God used him as a vehicle to expose me to another church. And I started seeing the difference between um, the sermons in my church and his church. You know, when I would go to his church, I felt like my soul was being fed. And whenever I went to my church, I just felt empty. And um, I also started doing this, um, a verse-by-verse Bible study, and it was pretty deep. And there, again, God was calling me, and I could see that what the church had been teaching me was false doctrine. And it was very hard. It was not easy, but I made the decision to leave the church. I wanted to follow what God was saying in the Bible and not um, what the church was saying. And that was just a huge moment in my life. Um, I felt like I had joy. I felt like I had gotten this deluded God, like I had a veil. Even though I knew God, it was like a veil was removed from my eyes. And this heavy yoke of legalism was lifted off my shoulders. And it's been amazing to truly know God's grace. And as I left the church, I started reading the Bible and comparing, okay, what does kind of like I had to revise everything, go through everything that that church had taught me, and I had to go to the Bible and sort out what was true and what was false. And the amazing thing was just really getting to know and understand God's grace towards me, that even though I am a sinner, there is grace. And so... That's basically it, and (laughs) not sure what else to say, but I will say that his grace is amazing, and if you have pain in your heart, if you don't know him, let him take it. Don't, you know, church on Sunday morning is not this thing that you check off your list. Um, He is real, and he wants to work in your heart, and like Dean said, you know, like, he, it's a continuous thing. He will continue to work in your life. But we need to depend on him. And even now, as a mom of three children, sometimes I like to pretend I'm super mom and I can do it, you know, but really I can if I want to be a good mom, not a mean, cranky mom. I really have to relay on his strength um, and his grace um, to, to be able to be a good mom. So happy Easter, guys. Morning, everyone. Mind if I? Uh, I don't like being stationary. My story. I'm Stephen. My story is not really a story of conversion. I was converted to Christianity at a very young age. I grew up in the church, so when I was seven years old, I did what you were supposed to do. Went down the aisle of a church and 
I said a prayer and I was baptized and then I continued growing up in my middle class Christian family home as a good kid. And as I grew up, I started learning scripture, I started learning the Bible stories, I started being a very good and moral person. In fact, in, in high school, I was a leader in the youth group at the church, and I was a leader of a Christian organization on the campus that I was at, and I was a good and moral person. And I went to college, away from home. I came up here to Santa Fe, grew up in Orlando, and so I had this measure of freedom, and, and then all of a sudden, I'm not around my friends, I'm not around my family, not around the people that know me, and I am allowed this measure of freedom, so I can do whatever I want. So I started trying the things that uh, I'd never tried before, and, and just, I, I had a lot of fun. I never did anything crazy. I mean, a couple nights out till like four o'clock in the morning or something, or all-nighters not to study, but I just had fun, and I, and I was still that good moral person. In the summer of that year, uh, I was asked by the staff of the church that I'd grown up at to be a leader at this youth camp that they had, this summer camp. It's a two-week camp. First week was middle school, no problem. I had no problem in that camp. It was great. I mean, it was a lot of fun just hanging out with the kids. Then the second week, they started talking about the stuff that I was going through, and that was a little rough. Because the God that I was worshiping was not the God of the Bible. The God that I was worshiping was the God of self. Was myself, my pleasure, my desires, my wants. Jesus was not my Lord. And as I began to realize this, I began to, I mean, this is all in a short period. This was in like two days. Like, I just began to kind of seclude myself from everyone else in the worship services and and I would sit in the back. And then one night I, I was just overcome because God was on me. God was chasing after me. And I remember I went back into a room with nobody else and I cried for like an hour. And uh, it was a pretty awesome experience because at that point, Jesus became my Lord. I began to submit to him. Being a good and moral person is not what this is all about. Obeying the rules, learning scripture, that is nothing in God's economy. It's good things to do, but that's it. I had become a Pharisee. I had become a good, moral teacher. And, and I knew all the Bible stories, and, and maybe even more than, than some of the other leaders that were there. But I didn't know God. I knew a lot about him. And he certainly was not my Lord. And at that point, I realized that if he wasn't my Lord, he wasn't my Savior either. And so I submitted to him. I submitted to his leadership in my life, his calling in my life. And I began to follow him from that point forward. I began not to do the good and moral things that I was already doing, but to do the things that Jesus did, to follow after his example, 
to have compassion on people, to love people. Not just to smile and walk the other way when somebody's having a problem, but to actually invest myself in someone else's life. To care about them. To share his message of peace and goodness and grace and mercy. And that's what I did. And that's the way that I follow Jesus. He is now my Savior. He is now my God. He is my friend. And He is my everything. Thanks. Kevin? So, one of the reasons I, I had Gene and Stephen and Ketty share their testimonies with you guys this morning, and I, I know there's tons of you guys in here that, that have similar stories, or maybe, maybe you're not there yet. Um, but if you heard a, a, a common theme in every one of the stories, because every one of them was unique. Everyone grew up in a different cultural background, a different part of the city, uh, a different um, set of parents, a different set of struggles. The one consistent theme, if you look at each one of their stories, was a life kind of built on self, right? Jeans knew what he was supposed to be doing and what his church had kind of taught him to do, and he was building himself up and building up his own kingdom and doing those things. And Ketty, with a father who was absent, was still trying to fight through and do things on her own, even though her dad was completely absent, both physically and emotionally in, in, in her life. And you have Stephen who grew up in a good home and went to church and yet was building everything around who he was. And then if you look at the story of the Samaritan woman, she's trying to protect herself. And in every single one of these testimonies, what happens is finally God pursues them and laid bare before them is the true condition of who they are. Right, for for Ketty, it was, I'm fatherless. I don't, I don't have a dad. For Stephen, it was, I'm the Lord of my own life. I've been playing church my entire life. But I'm my own king. For Jean, it was, I can't even find a reason to live. Why am I even here on this earth? For the Samaritan woman, I have no one in this world. I've done everything I can to make men love me and give myself to them. And yet I just continue to be recycled by them and through relationship after relationship after relationship. And in every one of these stories, Jesus meets them there. And his word to them is, I love you. I've died for you and my grace is sufficient for you. And if you drink from me, the water of eternal life will well up in you for eternity, and you will thirst no more. I love these guys. They're, these three that share their testimonies, they're great friends of mine, but I love even more getting to hear about what Jesus has done in their heart. The, the stories they share with you guys, they'll never be the same because of it. Never. They'll never be the same. And yet, here's the fascinating thing about their story. Their testimony is going to change 10 years from now because they're going to have more evidences of God's grace and faithfulness towards them in the midst of their sin and all that they do. Guys, two things I want to leave you with this morning. 
that God we're celebrating here this morning is alive and well and doing the same thing in the lives of people in this church and able to do it in your own life the same way he was in the life of the Samaritan woman. He's not some far-off God. He's not the God of therapeutic, moralistic deism who's only interested in being contacted by you when you do something. He's there as a loving father ready to walk with you. He's there to correct, but as part of that correction, he's also there to teach and to love. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, we're going to take communion here in just a moment. And if you're a Christian, I invite you to come up and take communion. And what we're doing during communion is we're reflecting and celebrating and worshiping and thanking Jesus for what he accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. We're saying, God, I knew that my sin was something that I could not handle on my own, but because you gave your flesh and blood and poured it out for me through your death, burial, and resurrection, I am forgiven and adopted as a son and daughter of the Most High God. Thank you, Lord. Forgive me, and let's continue to walk through this together. And the promise of Scripture is that He's there for you that he will continue to walk with you, that he will not leave you or forsake you. The scripture promises that he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus. If you heard a consistent theme in these testimonies, every person was brought to a low point. And in that low point, when no one else was coming after them, Jesus was. If you find yourself in a high season right now, rejoice. If you find yourself in a low season right now, go to him. Respond to him because he is pursuing you, because he loves you. How do I know that? He gave his only son as a sacrifice for you. If you are not a Christian here this morning because you just came to church because that's what you do on Easter, or one of your friends who's a Christian said, hey, this is an important day, will you come? Thank you for being here, but this is for you too. That the good news of the gospel, a man who knows everything about you, The God who created you knows the number of hairs on your heads, who has seen you at your worst. He knows your shame. He knows your guilt. He knows your struggles. He knows your depression. He knows if you're like Stephen or Ketty and find yourself in the shackles of religion and culture, or if you're like me and found yourself in the a life lived for self that was completely gluttonous with addiction to alcohol, drugs, pornography, you name it, I was in it. Jesus meets us in both of those places. He's the God who saves us up from religion. He's the God who saves us from licentiousness. He's there for everyone, and he's here for you this morning. Jesus died to free you from your love of self in your own self-righteousness. As we take communion this morning, I pray that you would not do so until you've confessed your sin and stood at the foot of the cross fully accepted and loved in Him. And then instead of coming and taking communion broken over your sin and guilt, you'll come and take it forgiven and loved and accepted. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for this morning. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you that as I pray right now, I'm not praying to a wall or to the ceiling, but I'm praying to a God who hears me because he sits and reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Because he has victory over sin and death. 
that the cross couldn't hold him, that despite the best efforts of the culture and the disciples and Satan, that he still went to the cross on our behalf, and that the wrath of God was fully satisfied, and that in his death he was buried, and three days later as the women went to the tomb, it was empty because you are victorious. God, may we continue to worship you this morning. This is not about us. This is not about this church. It's not about the music. It's not about movies. It's about you. Even the very testimonies that were shared this morning were not about great lives, but they were about lives that were changed forever by a great Savior. Jesus, we love you. Continue to move in this place as we make you the hero that you are of all of human history. And I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.